G'day folks, welcome to another edition of Menacast, where we talk about the intersections of faith, economy, ecology and stuff. Manicast is the podcast of Manigam, a ministry in good news economics. My name is Jonathan Cornford and I'm talking to you from Jarjawarung country in Bendigo, Victoria. And I have here with me again today Matt Anslow, talk coming from, where are you speaking to us from, Matt? In white terms, I'm in a place called Canimbla, which is actually an Aboriginal word, uh, which is two hours or so west of Sydney. Um, but I am on the meeting place of Gundungurra, Wiradjuri and Dara Gland. Good to have you back, Matt. It's been a while since we did the last podcast together. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think we recorded the last one in December. Uh, so it's been a little while. We've had a little break, which has been nice, actually. So in today's edition, we're talking about an uh, article I wrote in the December edition of Matter Matters 2020, and it's an article I wrote in a, th- a three-part series called The Moral Ecology of Judgment, and this is the last uh, in that series. Uh, and so in previous uh, articles, uh, I'd talked about the idea of judgment uh, generally in the Bible. In the, in the second one, I talked about it more specifically in the Old Testament. Uh, and in this article, I talked about how judgment is discussed in the New Testament uh, and then how we think about the idea of judgment in history. And there are a whole bunch of ideas uh, in that article, some of which we'll get to talk about uh, today, and and other others we won't. Um, uh, yeah, how, how did you uh, find that article, Matt? <laughs> oh well, what can I say? Uh, look, uh, no, I, I like what you wrote. I, that was my favourite of the three part series, actually. Um, and I think, as I said to you at the time that you uh, sent it over to me, this is the this is where you sort of bring it all to a a conclusion and it all comes together there were points i think in the first two articles where you had these threads that were kind of hanging there and i was interested to see what you were going to do with them in this article you you brought those threads i think pretty satisfactorily together um and there were moments reading it where i thought yep yep (laughs) that's a good point uh like you've really articulated something about judgment that is really important and helpful for our time. So I'm going to pick you up on a few of those things uh, or a few of the possible threads that are still left hanging um, because, as you said, you can't say everything. Yeah, sure. I was going to, going to say I'm, I'm guessing that I didn't answer them entirely <laughs> to your satisfaction. Well, uh. well, I mean, you know, I'm never satisfied, you know. Uh, it's a bit of a Mick Jagger type situation, but... I mean, I, part of it is that I've also written on this topic in a in a different kind of way. But for us, there's uh, and it, it can make it hard to have this discussion because we agree on so much of this stuff. So I hope the discussion is interesting, uh, given how much that we actually agree on it. Um, but let me let me raise a few things, and we'll, we'll just get talking about it. So, for instance, right, one of the key things in your article, you say that when we think about the subject of judgment in scripture, we ought to focus less on kind of the, like the narrow uh, parochial dimensions of our individual lives and more on the so-called big stuff of human history. So I think you, you, you list things like uh, war, genocide, slavery, poverty, 
um, and environmental ruin, you know, species extinction, all that kind of stuff. Like this is the big stuff that's going on in the world. And you say we typically think of judgment as against individuals, but we actually need to stop thinking about it in that, in those terms so much and think about judgment in terms of this big stuff, right? Okay. So point taken, right? But some people might complain that you make that jump a bit too quickly from one to the other. And I could imagine that that's the case, particularly in certain Protestant kind of circles where theologically, um, things have been shaped in the context of modernity, a focus on the individual. And you see that in the way Protestants usually think about like salvation, for example. We think about it in terms of an individual being saved, right? And so the idea that judgment isn't primarily about the individual, but about the big picture, it rubs against that kind of Protestant ethos. And so here's my question, right? Scripture is pretty clear or it seems pretty clear anyway, that individuals do face judgment in some sense. So what uh, you, you make the case that judgment is primarily about systems. So what's going on there? What's the relationship between individuals and systems? What is, how does Scripture kind of link those things? Like, should we not think about judgment against individuals at all? You know, what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. But it's a great question, Matt, a really big question. I mean, gee, you've gone straight for the big ones right right up front. Uh, no, and that's the, the stuff we need to talk about. Uh, and it's a good example of, um, you know, the, our, the, the trouble that we have in, in trying not to think in either or terms by a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of things in the, in the Bible. Um, so... Yes, yeah, so I argue, argued in this uh, uh, article that we, we really should be thinking about judgment. Uh, it would help us to think much more about judgment in relation to the big stuff of history. And part of that arg- argument is really recovering the idea of judgment and its translation in, in the New Testament uh, and coming from the Old Testament. So in yeah. the New Testament, the word ju- translated as judgment is the word crisis, from which we get our modern word crisis. But it's also a word that's sometimes translated as justice. Mm. Uh, and certainly in the Old Testament uh, uh, tra- uh, translations, the word mishpat is often used for judgment. Uh, and that is a word all about justice. So what I'm trying to do is shift the way we think about judgment, which is all about something where, where out the way we have habitually thought about judgment is where we as an individual uh, are being if you like put on trial by God or being tested, being weighed by God. And it's this, this incredibly scary idea that uh, we're being weighed by this being other than us. And it doesn't, uh, for a lot of people, it doesn't feel fair actually that they're being weighed. Uh, uh, and it, it takes out of it. Um, so we lose sight of all the big stuff that happens in history. So judgment there for us is a threatening and negative concept. But actually for most peoples in history, for who have suffered injustice, the idea of justice being done one day is an incredibly positive concept. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this, this is something we don't get as, I guess, affluent first world peoples with uh, probably troubled consciences often. Uh, 
that for, for, for most people in the world through much of history, the idea of judgment slash justice being done one day, and this is certainly a sense in the Old Testament where the psalmists are crying out for judgment slash justice uh, continually, and the prophets are crying out for it as well. Uh, it's a positive concept. It's a concept of things being made yeah, right yeah. again. Uh, so, so that's that's what I'm trying to uh, to, to recover to, to a large extent is the positive idea of uh, judgment. Now, that doesn't mean so. So, I think it, we are much uh, we we get that much better by looking at the big stuff, uh, and certainly when the Bible in the Old Testament, uh, where it's most. Uh, often talking about judgment is in relation to the big yeah, stuff yeah. of history, systems, uh, and that's where it talks most powerfully about judgment. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't apply to individuals as well. Uh, and uh, so, and we can we can say that in two senses. So, um, so one, uh, the other thing I've done in this article is to make a distinction between the two senses that justice judgment is uh, talked about in the Bible, which is judgment within history so the judgment that we experience in the world of human affairs about us um, and the judgment at the end of history uh, a final day of judgment if you like uh, uh, the day that will come Uh, so and we need to make a distinction between those two things so when we think about individuals uh, if we come back to the first concept judgment within history which in the Old Testament is really the main sense in which judgment is being talked about. Uh, things, uh, the judgment of God playing out within human history, then that also applies for, for, for human beings as well uh, at the individual level. So the same processes, the same moral economy, which is the concept I've used right throughout the series, series of articles that's at play uh, in, on the large scale in human history and systems also works uh, at the individual level. Uh, so just as ecology wor- works in fractals, uh, that is uh, uh, the, the small stuff scales up in the same sort of patterns yeah. into big stuff and vice versa, uh, so in moral ecology, uh, the, the same ideas of cause and effect uh, where... where s- relationships are transgressed uh, that has an that has impacts that has uh when an an action happens that create and some sort of relationship damage is done uh whether that be between humans between humanity and god or between humanity and the natural world or all three at once that will always bring some sort of effect It, it cannot not have an effect in in the the created order that god's uh set up uh, those sorts of things bring further impacts uh, and they come down the line and that happens at a very small scale in our little human lives as well as at a very big scale so we can say this see the same moral economy at at, at work does that yeah, make yeah. sense no I, I mean it does to me uh the to the listener i i suspect it does as well um so what what do you think is the connection between judgments here because you you know you talked about judgments at the end of you know, however you want to phrase it, people will phrase it differently, the end of history or time or, you know, the end times or, you know, whatever language we use around that. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, so, I yes. mean, you didn't really get to talk about that yet. Presumably you think that's when God is going to finally sort everything out. Um, what, what's sort of the connection between those 
the the judgment in the present in the sense of us feeling the effects of you know our prior actions the cause and effect of our our sin or our goodness uh, and the final judgment where god sort of almost swoops in to sort everything out yeah it's a really good question of course we have to be um be very circumspect in how we talk about this because uh we're talking about something that is veiled yeah, in yeah. mystery for for all of us something which we we don't really understand um so i guess all we can all i can try and do here is trying to firm or or summarize how i think the new testament yeah. talks about it and and so the idea of a day of judgment at the end of history is particularly strong in the new testament uh and it's present in jesus especially jesus has uh things to say about and and in the writings of paul as well uh and so we can say that um What's its relationship to the judgment that happens within history? Well, it's the same moral economy at play, except with the exception that within the the judgments that happen within history, where everything takes place in the context yeah. of the fall, the impacts of uh, of human actions have impacts on on both the guilty and innocent alike. So this is something we've talked about a bit: is that the, the judgments uh, of yeah. that are felt in the Old Testament, for example, and that uh, I've talked about in this article that we can also witness in the rest well, of human and, history. And, and since uh, since you've written the a... article, we you know we can look at India and say India is basically in hell right now, right? Um, yeah. So and and we can see that as the impact of decisions that have been made at both small and large at yeah, the small yeah, and large yeah. scale uh, within. Uh, there and we we can just see that the working out of consequences of decisions and, inno- and all sorts yeah, of people yeah the innocent suffer get caught up in yeah. the effects of the sins of other people other more powerful people say and of course that story is writ large in the case of climate mm, yeah. change because in the case of climate change uh, we are seeing the impacts of uh, the judgments of history play out of human actions producing consequences within the biosphere. Uh, that simply cannot be avoided. And yet the people who suffer them first and most are generally those least responsible for those impacts. Um, so in the judgments within history, that uh, like uh, just as uh, in the New, uh, New Testament talks about the rain falls on good and bad alike, uh, the judgments of history fall on good and bad alike. Uh, if we think about what's happened in the American political system uh, and the judgments, if you... It, uh, to talk about it in that way, the, the trouble that they've had uh, experienced from their um, the failures of that system, uh, the people who have suffered uh, both yeah, good yeah. and bad uh, in that system have suffered a lot. And you see that in the that. New Testament too, when the disciples say to Jesus, so, you know, when the Tower of Siloam fell on all those people, were they really bad sinners or what was the story? And Jesus is sort of like, uh, no, that's not how that works, <laughs> you know. Uh, so the difference with the, the final day is, is that uh, the way that, I mean, it's talked about, and, and this is the, the difficulty, that there's different imagery used uh, in the Bible to talk about that day, but they all point in some way to talk about it as a day of things being made right, of justice being done. So where we see, uh, if you like, um, partial justice or 
it's often not justice really, but the judgments of history uh, bring impacts, but not necessarily yeah. justice. Uh, on that final day, there will be right done. Uh, and that is a much bigger and that really and that's where we come where it works out down to the individual level I guess uh, and where uh, the New Testament uh, does rightly speak to individuals about having a care uh, for where your eternal standing uh, and there's no way of getting around that that that's is a is a is a fundamental concern uh, of the New Testament uh, how that plays out again we need to be circumspect, circumspect about how we uh, saying too much about what God will do on that day uh, but we need to acknowledge that uh, one uh, that's an t- incredibly scary concept for most people and uh, for some people it's uh, unhealthily the reason that they're yeah, Christian because yeah. they're scared about that day uh, and that's not a good reason to be uh, a, a follower of Jesus. And for some other people, uh, the the very idea of that day is a turnoff uh, to to, yeah. to Christian faith. Um, and and I think at the heart of that is because what we've associated, what we find so difficult is to hold together is an idea when 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 right will be done, when things will be made whole again made uh, made well uh, and justice is done and that being done by a God who is love and a God who is grace in to a, a, a to a level that we yeah, cannot yeah. comprehend uh, we can't we find it difficult to hold those two concepts together the very same God bringing justice and rightness is the very same God who is the God of love and grace uh, at the at the heart yeah, yeah. of the New Testament, and that's what we really well, and we often to tend together. to think of justice in zero sum terms as well, where justice is good for some, yes. it has to be bad for others. Um, there's no sense that actually the justice of God can embrace all necessarily, but that is a different conversation. <laughs> you know, we we're getting into things that uh, yeah. you you know, as you say, we m- probably need to be circumspect about. Um, just going on from that, right? And this is something that you point out a number of times across your the three parts of the article. And that's that people are often concerned about being judged by a vindictive and arbitrary God. We've sort of touched on this a bit, but I want to hit it a bit, uh, a bit clearer. And so judgment becomes this thing that we, we buck against almost intuitively because we don't want to be, uh, you know, sent to hell or whatever by some arbitrary judgment or just a God who is angry and wrathful and vindictive, right? We, this is how we, I think this is a concern for a lot of people. It's pretty clear though, that many Christians think of God that way, as do lots of people outside the church. And they wonder why God would be so against us, you know, just lightening up a bit and enjoying, you know, life a bit more, having mm, more yes, sex or, yes. you know, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> like, um, like there are lots of people who just think, well, well it, it does because in our culture it's deemed as being something that's so harmless, right? Now sure, we could yeah. pull that apart, but we won't. Um, but it, that's one of the reasons why it's brought up so often. Like why does God care so much about that? that that's a sentiment in a lot of the community, right? Now you've said a lot about the fact, that, uh, the fact of judgment and that it's not what we tend to think it is. 
but you haven't necessarily named the basis of judgment itself, except to say that it's God's moral order in some sense. So it's one thing to point to the consequences of, say, climate change as judgment or of thousands of people dying of COVID because of poor management by a government, right? Okay, that makes sense in in cause and effect terms. We can see that and we can name that as judgment. But according to which standard are things being judged? Like what is the reality at the core of all this? So one of the difficulties we have in answering or thinking about this is is just even the the way we've we've been talking and and the language we've used of, of judgment yeah, and yeah. even saying what's the standard uh, that things are judged by and we're we're looking at an exter- something external if you like that that there's we see actions happen and we 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 think of an external observer bringing a measuring rule and uh, measuring things up does it that fit the standard that the external observer holds separately from the system. And what I'm arguing is that um, the standard is inbuilt into the system. And the standard is very simply this. It is the standard of relationship. So so when we ignore our relationship, and that's one way of actually um, describing what happens in Genesis chapter 3, is humans ignore their relationship to the creator uh, because they want to be like God. So they want to ignore the fact that they are creatures in relation to creator. They want to be like the creator themselves. And at the same time, by wanting to be like God, they ignore their relationship to the re- yeah. all the other creatures within creation uh, because we're somehow thinking of ourselves as different uh, from the rest of, from the other creatures of creation. Uh, and from that very first point, then that damages, once we start to uh, misconceive of our relationship or to ignore our relationship uh, and to... It, act in denial of our relationship if you like perhaps more more pointedly uh then damage occurs uh in in all sorts of levels yeah and this is wisdom that exists obviously in many indigenous cultures around the world where particularly you know for us here in australia we can point to the fact that aboriginal folks will remind us that actually we don't own the land the land owns us that we are part and and there are deep connections and different Aboriginal languages have different uh, words and language for that kind of connection. But there are, it's more than just a utilitarian kind of connection. It's, it's something deeper, uh, spiritual. um, It's written into the very fabric of existence in a sense. So I've explained that idea in relationship to, I guess you'd call it physical ecology you know, because I think it's very easy to see and we're, because, well, we're living in times where it's, it's just happening in front, of our, you know, in front of our eyes. We're seeing it unravel right before us. But I, what I'm arguing is that the same concept applies to all sorts of relationships. So even our, uh, the relationships between persons uh, or within families, you have what you might call ecologies of relationships yeah. in families. Uh, and ecologies of relationships in communities, church communities, or organo- workplaces. Uh, and when people begin to behave in those relationships in certain sorts of ways, then damage happens. And when damage happens in relationships, consequences follow inevitably, cannot not happen. Uh, therefore, there's, we're always bringing about some sort of, uh, some sort of, 
quote unquote judgment down the line by bringing damage and of course we're all doing it all the time uh, as a as a parent matt you and i know that um some of the mistakes we make of as parents uh will play out yeah, yeah. <laughs> with our children sure. uh, down the line and we can see that happening at times um uh but you know it, it happens in 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 every facet of life and the challenge for us is to begin to think of all the facets of life uh, and to think about the moral challenges of life not from this idea of uh, that God has uh, created a set of rules for humans to follow he's got a a big black book up in heaven uh, written all these rules down uh, and therefore we must we got to follow the rules that God ordained at the beginning of the universe but to to be able to see into what I would call the moral ecology of love at the heart of things and to be able to understand the impact of our our actions and then to be able to, I guess, uh, practice moral discernment from that deeper basis. Earlier Christians probably got this better than we do. I think because we're still struggling to work out how do we see ourselves in relationship to the rest of creation. Like as people who have inherited enlightenment, Western, you know, ideology, that is our challenge uh, as, you know, particularly white uh, people um, that we're having to overcome the way we've atomized ourselves, the way we've separated ourselves and elevated ourselves uh, above the rest of nature. And we've tried to overcome nature and master it. And we're realizing now, <laughs> maybe too late, that we can't. But before the Enlightenment, um, I think there's a lot more wisdom in the Western tradition about this kind of thing. I mean, the the patristics often use the kind of platonic language of participation, that all of existence is actually about participating in God, that at the core of everything is this notion that there is this God who is infinite uh, in, not, you know, uh, infinite in love and goodness and unity and uh, justice and, you know, whatever, beauty, and that actually the whole task of a creature is to participate in that infinite goodness. Um, And I think, you know, I, I think that's probably a good, you know, as good as any way to push forward to asking what is the ultimate reality and really what we're, you know, it always stops with, well, the first cause, God. Um, really what we're trying to do is to live in an existence that makes sense of the kind of world that, a, that, that, you know, infinitely beautiful and good God would create. And of course, as you say, it's characterized by love and relationship and, uh, limits you know in the in the sense of self-sacrificing for the sake of another because that's what god does right um and so i think yeah that's probably where i'd be inclined to go with it yeah sure i mean we have to bring everything back to the character of god because the character of the the created order uh is entirely a reflection of the character of the creator yeah Uh, and so and uh and not just a not just an imprint. So there's the idea of the we, we it's a reflection of, but actually, uh, the other thing the Bible attests is the the continuing uh, 
animating presence of the breath of God yeah, through yeah. the underpinning the whole of creation all the time, everywhere. So um, uh, it's not just uh, that God has created things, but God continues to hold things together in the language of, of Colossians. Yeah. yeah, and that language about participation is is uh, of the, uh, the church fathers is entirely true to the way Paul talked about uh, really our... Uh, what the work of Christ is. Uh, so the whole idea, the huge, the mind-blowing idea of what we're being called into uh, is that we're, be- we're being called into Christ yeah. and Christ is in God. We are being called into God to participate into the very life of God, becoming like Christ, uh, raised up in uh, uh, participating in the divinity uh, of Christ uh, and uh, you have this fusion between uh, between creature and creator, which is uh, mind-boggling. But that's the New Testament vision. Look, um, we've been going for a while, so let me ask you one last question. So you conclude the last article, and you make a what I think is a powerful but possibly controversial statement that the church is under judgment. So the various negative attitudes to the church today, you argue, are actually the consequences, um, the judgment that we reap for the church's hypocrisy, oppression, violence over the centuries. I wonder whether you could say a bit about how the church needs to respond to its ongoing marginalization in Western society. Sure. And look, let me just say, though, going back to your... um, uh, the I think what you are pointing to that uh, there's people arguing that saying that the, the, the church is being marginalized by some people with a very strong anti-Christian agenda, I guess is, is what you're, you're suggesting. Yeah. Well, typically, typically they would say, you know, the left, yeah, or yeah. something like that. Uh, and again, we don't need to be either or about that. Uh, yes, of course there, there is, uh, there's definitely um, uh, that going on. So a, a clear ideological agenda and quite concerted, ideological opposition to Christianity within a wide section of Australian intellectual elite. That is entirely true. But that's exactly the phenomenon that I'm trying to, I'm encompassing. Why has that come about? <laughs> uh, and and often yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, the arguments being put against Christianity and the understandings of them are unfair or unjust. But if we don't recognise that uh, one of the reasons that... W- that such people are doing such things is because Christianity has uh, created such ill feeling, or the church, let me be more specific, uh, that the church has, through history, created a reservoir of ill feeling to itself through its hypocrisy. Uh, and we're here, we're not just talking about the medieval Catholic church, who the Protestants love to point the finger at as, as having been profoundly corrupt and hypocritical, but... Protestant churches of almost every hue can be judged by the same standard there. And the crimes that the church has been complicit in from right through to colonization and since, and its failure to, to, to really be true to the Jesus of the Gospels and yet always claiming to speak for Jesus, uh, means that there's we, we've built up centuries and centuries of ill feeling. And 
So in a relational cosmos, the very, what I've been arguing is that you can't do that again and again and again. You can't sow the wind without eventually reaping the whirlwind. Or as Paul says, uh, you reap what you sow eventually in this uh, moral cosmos. Yeah. Uh, and to some extent, the, the marginalisation and the animosity that we see in Australia towards Christianity is the impact of our own failure in history. Um, and I, I think it's really important to understand that because if the church is, its core concern is to communicate to Australians and it's not simply to preach at them or to engage in controversies with those we disagree in and being louder than they are. If, if we're actually about communication and we're trying to communicate the gospel we need to realize that when we use certain language that might be perfectly uh, rich and meaningful and valid for us in our own context, when we use certain uh, language or speak about certain things out there in the broader world, uh, it simply can't be heard by people. No matter how we try to explain yeah. ourselves, uh, that there's too much ill feeling for, for, for them to, to hear the church say such things without misunderstanding it. Or miscomprehending it and sometimes if, if that is actually the case uh, and I think it is that that means if we want actually want to communicate then that might mean we need to stop speaking at some point and find other things that communicate such as actions ways of living yeah, some yeah. forms of communication that have uh, first a bit more humility about them to start with well I mean I agree, and I think that is probably a good place to leave it because we've been going for a while. Jonathan, thank you, not only for uh, your responses to some difficult questions this evening, but also uh, you know, a set of really excellent articles that I commend everyone to read, uh, if anyone who's listening to this, to go and read if you haven't already. Um, and you can find those articles at Manor. Uh, managum.org.au and if you click the Manor Matters tab uh, you'll see the articles and it's from the December 2020 edition. Jonathan, over to you. Thanks Matt and thanks for those probing questions of yours. In the next podcast we'll flip the tables a bit and I'll be asking Matt some questions about a series of articles he's written on violence and economics in the book of Revelation. So plenty to talk about there. So I hope you can join us for that. Until then, goodbye.